1993 in Hampton, Virginia, there was an incident at a local bowling alley that ultimately split that town in half. Something had ignited a brawl between a group of black high school students from Hampton and some white high school students from a neighboring town. A camcorder caught some of the racially charged chaos on tape. Punches flew, chairs were thrown. After the incident, arrests were made, but only black students were charged. Among them was a Hampton High School basketball phenom and future NBA star, Allen Iverson. The pride of Hampton prior to the incident, Iverson was charged with a felony and was ultimately convicted. My guest today, filmmaker Steve James, the maker of Hoop Dreams and the recent Roger Ebert documentary Life Itself, revisited all of this in his ESPN documentary, The Trial of Allen Iverson. Hampton, as it happens, was James' hometown as well, and his film examines the deep racial divide stirred up by the brawl and its aftermath. Trading somewhat on the fact that he hails from Hampton and that he played basketball for the very same high school as Iverson, he was able to get people on both sides of the argument to open up to him. But for various reasons, some resisted, and one prominent figure in particular posed a real challenge for him. That's Jane Hobson, a really smart and articulate woman who led a group that took up Iverson's cause. And while she shared information with James, she had no interest in speaking to him on camera. When he finally gets to sit down with her, she explains to him why she's reluctant to talk. She says, I think it's critical that African Americans tell their stories. When you look up and a story is being told and commented on and analyzed by only white journalists, then that in and of itself is very callous. And this is Steve's response to her. He says, I think it's one of the reasons why I decided to tell the story from the point of view of who I am. I am trying to understand it as a white guy who grew up here, and I'm trying to understand what it was like for you, which I do think one can do, because if we can't, there's no hope. He says that last line with a smile, and she does talk to him. I bring up this particular film and this particular moment in it because that, to me, really says all you need to know about Steve James. Virtually all of his films are about him trying to understand something. And somewhere at the heart of all of them is the thought that if we can't at least try to understand one another, that's a truly hopeless situation. I'm Ron Lazzaretti, and this is the Hog Butcher Radio Hour. When I was preparing to talk to you, I thought, I'm going to do like a little mini Steve James film festival for myself. <laughs> oh, man. Um, <laughs> I don't think that's it's possible to do little unless you just... Um, well, I, I Long went, films. I went, I went, I went six. I, 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 I focused on six of them. Uh-huh, that's pretty damn good. <laughs> um, ranging from Hoop Dreams to The Trial of Alan Iverson, Stevie... Um, Life itself at the death house door. Um, the commitment uh, to each of them is sort of incredible to me. Um, you know, hoop dreams being a prime example of something that you followed for years and years. Right. Is that uh, when you went into that? Did you know that was you were in it for that kind of a long haul? No, no. I mean, originally, you know, it's kind of funny to think about now, of course, is it, but originally it was going to be a short film focused on a single playground. I wanted to find a single playground 
and really make it a film about sort of the street culture of basketball, pickup basketball, you know, which I had some experience with, not in the inner cities at all, but in my life as a you know, guy who played a lot of basketball and played a lot of pickup basketball. So that was my fascination was to try to understand what it was about this game that made it so significant in the black community. And we wanted to touch on this idea of dreams and aspirations. Absolutely wanted to get into that, but but by focusing it very narrowly on a single playground where there would be dreamers like Arthur and William, there would be players who had come through and had some success but ultimately failed to make their dream happen, who were back there on the playground shooting hoops like, as it turns out in the film, William's brother Curtis. And then there might be a pro- professional player maybe a current player star who came off of that playground who kids aspire to be and so that was the idea which was a perfectly nice little idea and um eventually someone made a film called soul soul to the whole s-o-u-l to the whole out in new york that was very similar to to the idea that we originally wanted to do but what happened was is that when we finally got a little bit of money and we went out um then it changed and it wasn't no longer going to be a half-hour little isolated portrait, but it changed because we, through Earl Smith, this guy that was helping us look at playgrounds, he discovered Arthur, and so we just started filming that because we thought, wow, this is really interesting. So it, Hoop Dreams ends up, started out to be a film about the game on the playgrounds. It ends up really being a film about what happens to kids when they leave the playgrounds. You know, I, w- I went to the Oak Park Library to see if there were some of your films there that I hadn't seen. <laughs> and uh, as I was browsing in that section, I ran across a couple of other titles. Uh, one of them was uh, Crazy Love, and one of them was Capturing the Freedmen's. And I was reading on like one of the boxes for Crazy Love. It's, it was one of those critic blurbs, and it said, Crazy Love is pulp nonfiction simultaneously disturbing and luridly entertaining. And I got kind of hung up on that word lurid. <laughs> and I, I haven't seen the HBO production of The Jinx, which I believe is by one of the guys. Andrew Jarecki, yeah, who did Capturing who the Freedmen's. did Capturing the Freedmen's. That seemed like another example of luridly entertaining in pulp nonfiction. And somehow that seems very consciously what your stuff isn't. Um and I don't know if that's a conscious thing. I, I don't know if I'm assuming luridly entertaining is a is a good selling point, um, because. Um, but I'm always got, I'm reminded of that. There's a great Ebert quote about um, David Lynch that he said once. He said, "There's something repulsive and manipulative about it, and even its best scenes have the flavor of a kid in the schoolyard trying to show you pictures you don't feel like looking at." <laughs> And That's and I thought about that a great quote. because I, I I you know I'm not above looking at that quite honestly, but I don't find it as gratifying an experience ultimately. Um, do you ever dabble in the luridly entertaining, <laughs> or are you consciously not in that direction? Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know that I'm even capable of it. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, and I don't mean that as a. Uh, I'm not looking down my nose at it. I'm just. I don't know that I could do it, um, <clears throat> even if I tried. Um, I do like that description, though, luridly entertaining. It'd be great to have that on a box somewhere. <laughs> uh, you know, I think I, I like to think of my films as entertaining um, because I, I do feel like, um, you know, all my films 
uh, have a sense of humor about them. You know, that, that, I mean, people even in tough situations are funny, you know, and I'm, I'm always on the lookout for moments of levity and humor in the telling of the stories because it's the way life is. And, and so, you know, I mean, Hoop Dreams has a lot of laughs in it. Um, the Interrupters, if you've seen that, um, that's about a very serious subject, or yes. urban violence, but there's a lot of laughter in it. I mean, I've seen that film with a lot of audiences when it was out on the festival circuit, and I think it really surprised a lot of audiences just how entertaining it could be at the same time as that it was very serious. So those things are very important to me. Your films are very personal. You are always working through something, and Stevie's a good example. Just, you know what, let's give a little back ground and what just if you could sort of lay out what the story of stevie was yeah well stevie fielding is a kid that i was a uh, advocate big brother to when i was in school in southern illinois Uh, my wife worked with what they called kids at risk and she encouraged me to sign up for the program and so i did and so they decided because my wife was a professional that they would give me the hardest kid they had which was stevie fielding um and so for almost three years, I was his big brother. It was not an easy thing. And when I moved to Chicago and started a career and all that, I, I never really went back there. I'd, I'd send him Christmas cards every year, um, but I pretty much lost touch with him. And so 10 years later, after Hoop Dreams was done, I, had it, I was being invited back to Southern Illinois, and I went back, and I thought it would be great to look him up. And in the process of looking it up, I had, had this thought that it would be interesting to do a little again, a short film, Ron, uh, to do a, a little portrait of him now. He's now 24. When I left, he was 14. That's a big difference. Sort of here's his life now, and then looking back on who he was when I was his big brother. That was the idea. Well, I went down there, and I did some initial filming. And then because I got to do a feature, a small feature, uh, Prefontaine, it kind of got set aside for almost two years. And then when I reconnected with him to finish this little portrait, he had just been arrested and charged with sexually molesting a cousin, an eight-year-old girl. And so the film continued, which was an interesting choice to make (laughs) and a a fraught choice. Um, And so it becomes not just a portrait of who Stevie was when I was his big brother, which was the original intent, it becomes a, a film very much about what is what has led him to this place that he's in now and what's going to happen to him because he's basically, he started out confessing to the um, crime, then he withdrew the confession and wanted to go to trial. And so for most of the film, we're waiting to see what's going to happen to him when he goes to trial. I think by virtue of how the... F- how that film unfolds you are even more present in that film than any of your other films yes i um did that present any kind of a dilemma for you the the deeper you got into it yeah well i tell you it gave me tremendous respect for people who consent to be in documentaries without control over any of it i i you know i'm in my documentary in stevie in a substantial way like you say but i'm still the director of the film it's still my film so i have a level of of comfort and control over what i put in what i don't that 
subjects don't. So it gave me tremendous respect for the leap of faith that's asked of them because I felt very vulnerable and it was my film. Right. Um, the, the decision to put myself in the film was governed by, you know, really two things. One is um, once he this crime happened and, and it upended his life and that of his family, I, I found myself drawn back into his life in a way, kind of like when I was his big brother. Um, and I felt like I was kind of part of the story that to ignore my involvement in his life beyond the film at the level of trying to sort of help him deal with this situation in a, in a way that was responsible and, and would ultimately be good for him, that I was part of the story and had to take account of that. The other part of it is, is that if I was going to decide to make this film about this kid in this incredibly difficult situation and show his life and all that he had been through and and delve into this crime which is you know some a crime that most people don't really want to see anything about that I felt I felt it was important that um, the act of even making this film becomes part of what the film's about the decision to make it because ultimately every documentary filmmaker is faced with that kind of decision about you're showing people's lives and most documentaries, most of the ones we remember are about people's lives that go in unfortunate directions. You know, there aren't many happy go lucky documentaries out there that are, that, that are, that we all remember. Right. That's just not what happens there. You know, there's some comedies out there, which is great, but this, you know, so I felt like I also needed to be sort of held to account in a way too that I'm as much a part of this story and need to put myself as honestly as I can into the story as anybody I'm following in the story. I I was starting to say earlier I was I was surprised at how present you are in in so many of your films. I mean, from your voice in Hoop Dreams um uh, all the way to a different extreme in in something like Stevie, um, you, you're kind of there's a stealthy way that you do it <laughs> because you, you don't strike me as somebody who's dying to be certainly in front of the camera, um, and and the way you it seems to me you're always creating more of a context and a perspective. You, you know, there's a part in um, the Allen Iverson. Uh, the Allen Iverson film where you're really being challenged, I think, by by a woman who was part of, was it the organization that, was it Swiss? Yes. Um, and she doesn't want to necessarily talk to you because she is, I would say, somewhat offended by the fact that this story and so many other stories of race um are being told from the perspective of someone uh, of a of a white person, and she says, "I think she calls it a callousness." Yes. And um, you say something in here that I found really interesting. You say, in in the way that you really try to, I think, have her open up to you a little bit, but it's really telling. You say it's it's one of the reasons why I decided to tell the story from the point of view of who I am. I'm trying to understand as a white guy who grew up here and I'm trying to understand what it was like for you which I do think one can do because if we can't there's no hope (laughs) and it really stops her cold but it was very telling that you 
kind of had to put yourself, and and you're a big part of that story too. Do you want to talk a little bit about the Allen Iverson yeah. trial? <clears throat> yeah, it's and it's great that you seized on that moment because I think that was a key moment for me um, in the making of the film. So yeah, the the story, the film is called No Crossover: The Trial of Allen Iverson. It was part of the ESPN Thirty for Thirty, the original thirty films that were created for that series. And in this film, I go back to my hometown in Hampton, Virginia, uh, to, to explore what happened at the time I made the film, 17 years earlier, um, back in you know, 1993, so even longer now, 22 years, um, where Allen Iverson was a high school basketball and football star, and he was involved in a racial bowling alley brawl incident in which it totally cleaved my hometown. Up to that moment, he was one of the most, if not the most celebrated high school athlete to ever come out of that area. And there's been a lot of pretty terrific ones that have come out of there. So, you know, that, 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 was, a, that was a pretty good distinction. And then, um, um, but after that, uh, the, the community really cleaved largely, but not exclusively along lines of race. And Iverson and his black friends who were involved in the fight ended up being put on trial. None of the white combatants were put on trial, which then caused even more furor over this. And so I went back to not try to um, figure out what happened in the bowling alley because there's all kinds of different disputes. I went back to do a film about how did this, how did this athlete and this incident cleave the community in the way it did and really try to understand 17 years later why and to what degree what is the legacy of that and so I am in the film because it's my hometown which I share with Alan Iverson and um, I interview my mom in the film right <laughs> my dad was the one that first sort of told me about Alan Iverson he used to send me clippings of him um, I interviewed the police chief who was someone that was a dear friend of my dad the ex-police chief, and at one point when I'm interviewing him and, and sort of pressing him on some of what happened, he's like, why are you doing this? Yes, you right. know, He's like, not happy that I'm doing this. And so I think it was just important, it was important, yeah, that I come back because this film is every bit about race, that it's, it is the thing, it is the, the elephant in the room, in this case the white elephant in the room, which is me, I'm a white guy, coming back to make this story about Allen Iverson and what happened. And the woman you spoke about, Joyce Hobson, who led this this group that defended Alan, I would talk to her on the phone when I would when I would make trips down there, trying to get her to do an interview. And I had several conversations with her. The good news was she would at least answer the phone and talk to me, and she would even share some of her insights. And I kept saying, "Miss Hobson, you've got to be in this movie," and. One of the things that really helped me ingratiate myself in going back to my hometown to get people to even talk about this to begin with, because a lot of people didn't want to, was the fact that I was from there, helped, that I'd made hoop dreams, helped, and that I had played basketball there. That also helped. So there was a level of trust that they had um, because of those things that opened some doors. Well, with Joyce Hobson, I tried playing all those cards, if you will, to kind of get her to trust me. And she said, listen, you don't understand. The reason I don't want to talk to you is because you are from here, because you are white. And there's no way I feel that you can possibly 
tell the truth because of those factors. <laughs> and But eventually I prevailed and she agreed to do an interview and I decided that the very first question that interview needed to be the one that you just, you described to really have her articulate her resistance to it and for me to answer it in some fashion. Um, and the good news is, is that she, she, the film is so much stronger for her presence. And when the film was done, she liked the film. In fact, she went to a couple of film festivals on its behalf and spoke about the issues. And, you know, it, it was a great outcome. Um, for where, given where she was starting. But it's always, see, I think that's always, a, you know, her question is always a legitimate question, which is when white people try to tell stories that are deeply important and about black people or any different race group, it really, you know, it, it really is a serious question of should you be telling that story? It's not a question of, do you have a right to? Of course you have a right to. The question is more is, should you be telling it? And if you're going to tell it, how are you going to tell it? And kind of what I like about this, you having read that quote back to me, is in a weird sort of way, maybe this is one of the reasons you read it, in a weird sort of way, I think all the films I've done, that is, that's the rationale. Yes. Even if I'm not literally in them like that film, I do feel like every film I've done is this incredible process for me of discovery and when I begin the film, I have one level of understanding and knowledge. And then throughout the making of this film, it goes in a completely different and much more, you know, meaningful direction. And I really do feel like that the films, when you watch them, when you watch them, ideally what I'm wanting you to kind of get is in a much more distilled fashion, <laughs> shorter period of time, that you kind of go on the same journey that I went on as a filmmaker, that the revelations that I got are kind of presented to you in that same way, that, that the film is a, is a journey itself in the same way that the filmmaking was a journey and that you as a viewer have a similar experience. How often are you surprised? Always. I mean, I'm surprised always. I mean, I'm surprised... I'm surprised always. I always go into a film. I know enough. I know enough now to know that when I go into film, I never go into a film thinking I know everything. I always know I don't know that much. But I'm surprised at how little I know, <laughs> because you know I've been doing it for a while, and I'm also surprised at how how easily I can succumb, just like everybody else, to certain stereotypes that have to be rooted out and and undermined. Um, you know, when we did The Interrupters, which, you know, is a film where we follow around these folks who are working for this organization that was called Ceasefires, now called Cure Violence, that um, are ex-gangbangers who are trying to mediate violent conflicts in the streets, you know, often in neighborhoods that they once were part of the problem. Um, <clears throat> um, you know, I'd spent a fair amount of time in those kind of communities with Hoop Dreams and some other stuff I'd done. I, you know, it's not like that was that didn't feel like an alien environment to me. I didn't grow up there. I didn't live there. But it didn't feel like an alien environment from my film experience. But when we when we did the interrupters, I had this expectation that what we were going to find is is that people in places like Englewood feel they are numbed to the violence because it's so prevalent. Chirac, you know, as as Chicago's come to unfortunately be called. It's like I figured people were numbed to it and hopeless, 
feel completely hopeless about it ever changing. That was what my attitude was going in. That's not what I found. What we found was is that people, no matter how many people they'd lost, and I, and I didn't meet a single individual, this is not an exaggeration, I did not meet a single individual in the course of making that film who had not lost either a loved one or a dear friend or oftentimes both to violence. Um, just imagine that, right? Um, but the, the, it didn't matter. It didn't matter how many people you've lost. Every time you lose someone, it's, it's awful. It's terrible. It's tragic. There was no, I didn't see numbness at all. And I also didn't see hopelessness. I saw people who really are, are, and, and are actively working to try and, you know, do what they can in their communities to make them less violent, to make them more peaceful. There's, uh, in the interrupters, it was, it was one of those, almost like a hard film to find the night you want to sit down and watch that. You know what I mean? There's, there's That's a, certain, a problem with my work. There's a certain element of it where you're thinking this is, but I have to say, in looking at the interrupters, well, I find this in, in all of your films. There's a, there's, there, there are moments in between the bigger moments and, and many of them sneak up on me. I would say, for whatever reason, one of the most impactful, poignant moments I can remember from The Interrupters, the thing that immediately comes to my mind every time I think of that movie, is, is the young lady getting her nails done. You know what? I, I was going to predict that that was what you are going to say. <laughs> is that common? So funny. I don't know how common it is, but for whatever reason, when you started to say it, that's what popped in my head because I think, in fact, it's one of the most memorable moments for me it, in the film. It's really, I mean, I, I'm not kidding. It, I, I was sort of in tears just watching that part. And that's not even knowing exactly where it was going to go because in the end, she sort of regresses and ends up in more trouble um but there's that moment of hope and 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 it and it's it's very real but it's also um very delicate and you know so fragile that you know it's like oh you, you just hope against hope that this is the beginning of something better and that 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 moment really hit me in that film um there are other powerful moments and there are other more kind of upfront moments but for some reason that's the one that lives with me and i find that it's in in a lot of your films um but there's a moment too in hoop dreams where um it's arthur it's later in the film he's having some troubles at school i think um and he's writing a paper i believe the butterfly paper yes and you <laughs> you start to kind of ask him to please, you know, can you see it? Can you see the the paper? Read it to you. Yeah. And at some point he he just he does not want to share this with you. No. And you kind of needle him. It's not, you know, and there's a little bit of a glimpse of a relationship that you have with him at this stage of the game. Do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, it's like unlike many of the other things there's this kind of like uh it's very informal, and I imagine over a period of years, you know, that's what happens. Um, but you're also trying to encourage him to 
do something for you a little bit. So we get a little bit of a glimpse of that too. And you, I mean, obviously you put it in there, so it's not like we've caught you. Yes. I mean, you, you put it in there. What what made you want to put a moment like that? Well, in no, there? it's it's interesting you bring that up because let me start by mentioning the the only other place in the movie where you really hear me actively engage, and it's with Arthur, and it's at the very beginning of the movie. It's when he's on his way out to St. Joe's for the first time to play in this camp. He's, he knows he's going to see Isaiah Thomas, or hopes he is. And, um, you know, I, I, you hear a bit of a conversation between the two of us, and at one point I say, he's talking about, you know, maybe he'll get to see Isaiah, and he has to perform well, and I say, is it kind of scary? And he gives this big smile and he goes, you know, it is, you know, talking about Isaiah, because it'll be the first time I've ever seen him up close in real life. And it's a really beautiful moment, right? And in that case, it's essential. The question is essential. You need the question in order to really understand that reaction, right? So it's, it becomes a practical thing, but there's a nice tenderness there. The moment you described the butterfly, that's much later. It's uh, Arthur's now senior. And Arthur, you know, by this point, you know that Arthur has been very resistant academically. You know, he's screws around in class. He's, he's a much smarter kid. Everyone says he could do a lot better. He just doesn't apply himself. And you know that. We've tracked that part of his life. So I think one of the reasons that moment's even in the movie was here he is. He's writing this paper on the butterfly the life cycle of the butterfly and he doesn't want to share it. And I'm, yes, I'm I'm like, why not? Come on, tell us. <clears throat> and so the part of the reason that, that I'm in there, that banter is in there is to show a bit about that relationship, but, but mainly it's to show his resistance, even though what he's written is actually quite good. When he finally reads it, his opening, yes, it's pretty damn good. It's really good, right? Yeah, and and he reads it and he goes and then and then it goes on from there, you know. And he doesn't want to read any more. And so to me, that that interaction between the two of us is more revealing about him than our relationship. I think you get that, but it's more revealing about here's this kid who has the intelligence, has the smarts to to succeed academically, but doesn't, but is embarrassed doesn't want to value it out of embarrassment, is fearful that what he does isn't good enough. You, I think you see all that in that moment, and it, and it comes from the, the moment between us. If I had tried to cut myself out of it, you wouldn't have gotten any of that. Right. Was there ever any concern in shooting like Hoop Dreams that the mere act of following them and shooting them would somehow feed this notion that they already had that they were special and that they were going to do you know what i'm asking was there ever that concern that because you know even if they get used to your presence everywhere you go following them their kids being followed by a film crew yes did that ever get was that ever something you wrestled with it's a no it's a great question it's funny because when we were once we settled in and started following the kids um you know it wasn't (laughs) i remember one time where we were out following, we were in Arthur's neighborhood, which was West Garfield Park. And he's, uh, some guy across the streets, like, who we don't know, he goes, and Arthur wasn't even with us at that moment, so, but he knew we were following Arthur. He's like, yo, you guys, 
what do you follow an AG for? I'm much, much better. I need some pub, you know? And it's like, we laughed and we thought it was very funny, but it's like, you know, there, yes, I think that on some level, you know, with William, because people were telling him he was going to be a great player and he had this pedigree because Curtis had been a very talented high school player and, and even college player before he kind of crashed and burned. Um, I don't think, you know, us following William around brought with it that same kind of possible sense that, that, oh, well, then I really must be great. And you have to also understand, we were like these three guys driving a really rusted out, my car was a rusted out Mm -hmm. uh, hatchback, you know. Right. This was not some high-end production, you know, going on here. So on some level, they didn't, they weren't, you know, wowed by, by what we were doing. (laughs) Um, But with Arthur, I think it did, it did, you know, it did contribute to him thinking, maybe I am special, especially at the beginning, because um, when he got kicked out of St. Joe's and ended up back at Marshall, um, it all happened during a period of time where we weren't able to film. I didn't even know about it until after he'd literally left St. Joe's. And then I went to Marshall to a game to watch him play without the camera because he'd landed at Marshall and he was on the sophomore team. And after the game was over, I waved to him and he gave me this funny look and he came up in the stands and he sat down and he goes, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, what do you mean? What am I doing here? He goes, well, I, I figured once I got kicked out of St. Joe's, you guys wouldn't want to film me anymore. I go, why? He goes, cause I'm, I'm not going to be some star. And that's the moment where you realize <clears throat> he's thinking not just because he was recruited to St. Joe's, but because we're following him and we're following this guy, William Gates. So everybody says, Oh, he's going to be a big star that we had in some ways inflated his sense of, of what he could become. But he had been deflated at that point and it ended up being a real bonding moment between him and us right. as filmmakers that we didn't leave him, that we stayed with him, that his story was still important to us despite where, where he was at now. But I think all your subjects, I, I think here's one of the good things about doing a documentary that often doesn't get talked about, which is, you know, when you do a doc, when you select someone and they agree to be in your film and you're going to tell their story, it of course it it's flattering to them on some level. It's flattering because oh my god, someone wants to tell my story, and that's always flattering. It means wow, maybe I am significant in some way, even though I never thought of myself that way. But the other thing is, is that the act of making the film causes them to think about their lives in ways that they might not have without a film. You, you're because you're in their lives in this regular way, and you're interacting with them and and talking to them about their lives, and and asking them to speak about their lives and think about their lives. It is this kind of kind of form of therapy in a way, you know. Sure. In the best sense, I like to think where they are regularly encouraged to reflect on who they are and what they're doing and what where their life is leading them, and that's that changes people. That changes people, and I think that's a good change in a film. That's a kind of change that a film brings about in your subject that I make no apologies for because I, th- I think that it, they should get something out of this besides what little fleeting bit of notoriety that might come to them as a result of being in, a, in this. They should get something more real out of this 
And that's one of the things they get real. And if, if I can ramble on one more second, I'll use an example from Interrupters, which I think really illustrates this. One of the favorite pe- people in all of Interrupters subjects that, we, that you come across in the film uh, is this guy, Flamo. Right. <clears throat> right. When you first meet him, he is a very angry, drunk guy bent on revenge. Um, I mean, you know, it's one of the more remarkable, I think, scenes in the movie. And it is a great scene. My favorite scene with Flamo, though, is the next one, which is uh, Kobe, the interrupter who encountered him and is trying to help him get over uh, his murderous rage and, and kind of turn his life in a different direction. He goes and takes Flamo out to get him some jerk chicken one night, and we're in the car with them. And Flamo is in the back seat, and he's, it's a very funny scene in a lot of ways. But there's one moment where it becomes incredibly poignant for me, where he talks about how he's tired of basically, you know, being in the streets like this and running up against the drug dealers and the gangbangers and everything else that he's doing. And that he wants to, he doesn't want to be a guy that people are telling the story about. He wants to be the one telling the story, which is his way, this very poetic way of saying, I don't want to be some dead and gone character that people love to talk about. Remember Flamo. I want to be alive and telling my own stories and and changing my life. And that's a kind of moment that had the camera not been there, he's going through that. He's the wheels are turning in Flamo's head about what is he doing with his life? Now, to what degree the film had a role in that? I don't know. Kobe certainly did, but, but his articulation of that, I think would have been different if the camera hadn't been there. He is struggling to talk to us as outsiders, as people who don't live there, who haven't lived that life and explain to us what he's trying to do with his life. And it's beautiful. And it probably wouldn't have happened without a camera. It doesn't make it less true at all. It just makes it different because it's being expressed because of a film. Is it hard sometimes to... I mean, especially with a project where you've got a long-term kind of a thing going, is it hard to for them or you when you walk away, when the project is done, when that's over? Yeah, I mean, it's always a challenge because, you know, <clears throat> at the end of the project, everyone's feeling on most of them, sometimes not. <laughs> but oftentimes, I'm happy to say, most times, people have felt really good about the experience and there's a closeness and, and yes, we're all like, well, of course we're going to stay as close as we are now. And that's really hard to do. It's on any film in a way. Yes. Yes, because, it's true. Because every film exactly. is this intense experience exactly. where you're all going to camp together. Exactly. Yeah, it's true on narrative too. Absolutely. Yeah. You get to the end of it and it's like, oh yes, we're going to, you know, but of course you can't. And some people you do and most you don't. I've done pretty good over the years, but it's never going to be quite the same. It's never going to be quite the same. You know, you, the, the closeness will often remain there when we do see each other um, and make a point of seeing each other, but we're not in each other's lives like that anymore. So it can't, it can't remain the same level. Of I guess I closeness. wonder if for real people, as opposed to actors, if it's different because, yeah, because they get used to this foreign thing in their lives. You know, I imagine it's, it's attention too that you're not used to getting. Absolutely. Um, 
Well, like I'm close with Arthur and William still all these years later. Um, and I'm, you know, I've lost touch with Stevie since he got out of prison, but um, I've just recently, Judy, my wife, figured out that he could be living in New Orleans and there's an address, so I'm going to probably write him. But, but throughout his entire 11-year pr- prison sentence, I stayed in you know, close contact with him and visited him and sent him you know, money for the commissary and all that stuff. And with the interrupters, you know, I remained very close to Amina, um, not in as close a contact with Eddie and Kobe, although my partner on that film, Alex, it's sort of like the opposite with him. He's, he's remained close with Kobe and Eddie and not as much with Amina. So between the two of us, we've kind of got it covered. <laughs> but it's not like I don't want to be around them. It's just, you, yeah, life goes on, their life goes on. And I think one of the things that happens in uh, one of the things that happens is when in a film, in a documentary, you know, my job is to reach out to them constantly. I'm the one driving that relationship, in essence. Right. Um, they're used to being reached out to by me. When the film is over, that doesn't happen so much anymore. And, you know, any real friendship, as you know, is a two-way street. But they're not used to playing that role with me. They're, not, they're, they're used to me always being the one calling them. Right. And sometimes, oftentimes, I find that's part of why it's hard to maintain that. Because I just simply can't do that. And they're not used to doing that. They're not used to just reaching out to me and saying, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Maybe we could get together for coffee or something. I'd like to talk a, a minute about the Ebert film, Life Itself. You know, what was it in that, in telling that story? Like, what were you trying to learn in the story of Roger Ebert? Yeah, I mean, what's to me, you know, what's interesting about Life Itself is it's it's more of a, you know, I feel like I've done a variety of things within the films I've done. You know, they're they're not they're not all the same. Uh, aesthetically, uh, you know, there there are link, there there are things that are similar, but they're not all the same. And life itself was a real departure for me because it's a, it is a biography. Um, in some ways, it's a straight ahead biography, but I like to think it it deviates from that some because of the, uh, the fact that we were following Arthur, uh, Arthur <laughs> that we were following Roger around for those last months, as it turned out to be the last months of his life. I think when I. You know, when I was I was first approached about this idea, I looked at it and I thought, well, I need to read his his um, memoir. I hadn't read it because the idea of doing a film on Roger Ebert simply as Roger Ebert, the film critic, um, didn't appeal to me that much. Uh, if I had read his memoir and thought, not a very interesting life, but a very significant film critic, I think I, I, I would have just said, I'm not going to do it. Thanks, but no thanks. Um, reading his memoir was amazing because it really dawned on me that here was this guy that had been a significant film critic and had had this truly extraordinary life that informed all of who he was and how he wrote about film. And so that appealed to me. And so, you know, I think a big part of the Ebert film was really just sort of... Um, the, the big challenge going in was I want it all. I want to, I want to set his place in film culture, but I really want to delve into his personal life and what made him the man he is, warts and all. 
And, and so that was kind of an exciting journey to go on. And then in following him around in the present, which is the kind of thing I would normally do, I was looking for it to reveal him in ways that people talking about him or him talking about him don't, which it does. And I, but I did not expect that it was going to be the last months of his life. And of course, because it was, it adds a whole other level to the film than we intended going in. Yeah, I'm struck in that film by the, just how real time his suffering was, how the mundane, the quiet moments, the the routine, the having to clean out his windpipe or whatever yeah. they were doing there, the you know that that feeling of like wow, this, you know, this is going on in real time. There's no relief from this and his his being able to endure a lot of that was i just found incredible but i also you know this gets into another one of those questions of of what it's like when you're there and you're filming and you're trying to capture a moment without necessarily being in that moment or getting yes. in the way of it i'm struck by the scene where he is being brought home from the hospital <laughs> You can't get up the stairs exactly. Um, he's she's frustrated. He's frustrated. Um, and there's part of me too that's like, can't the guys in the crew pick up the thing and do the? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Do you ever have that feeling of like, when do we, when do we say, hey, uh, cut, uh, <laughs> we'll get this thing up the stairs? Uh, Some sometimes. Sometimes yes, and there's I could give you an example from the interrupters. Uh, where I did speak up at a certain point, it was very interesting as a result of what happened. But in the in the case of the scene you're talking about, actually, no, that never dawned on me to say to cut and say, "Well, help," because in fact, what that scene is about is is that Chaz Roger's wife is insistent that Roger do this himself, that the chair not be in the exact perfect spot for him to just step up and step on a. a uh, uh, a stare because she, you know, she's trying to get across to him in that moment that you can do this and this is what you have to do. And as someone who has pushed him for the last, who, who had pushed him for the last six, seven years since the cancer really took hold in his, in his life, that had been part of her role, which he appreciated about her, that he, she would push him and push him. And so she digs in her heels, and he digs in his. And I think, to me, one of the m sort of most of uh, what I expected to happen was is that Chaz was going to look. I, w I happened to be shooting that day. That Chaz was going to look over her shoulder at me and go, "Stop filming this. That you know we don't need this right now." And I would have stopped. I would definitely would have stopped. But they, they didn't, and it was partly because, I think, two reasons. One is that they were really focused on this thing that to them, each of them was very vitally important to both of them. They were, they were you know, they're in the middle of a marital, a marital situation, but it's about something hugely important about his health. And the other thing is, is that by that point in the process, um, Roger got there very early, almost from the start, very, pretty much from the start. It took Chaz a while to get to that place where allowing us to see moments like that were okay because she was so used to being his protector and wanting to look out for him. And so I took that as a, a very 
strong indication that at that point she really truly understand understood because she never came back to me the next day or a couple of days later and said hey listen that thing you filmed in the stairs does that have to be in the movie she never did that there's actually a sort of a lovely little the way that ends up he ends up in the house and she's hung a valentine wreath for him yeah and they applaud, and he <laughs> applauds, and he touches his heart. And right after they had this moment in the yeah. in the stairway, yeah, I mean, I mean that movie, to some degree, really is a love story. Yeah, I really, I really came to think of it as a love story on all these levels. You know, it was it's Roger's love affair with journalism, his love affair with movies, obviously, his love affair with Chicago, the city, um, which I share. Uh, and then I think you know. And then, of course, this really amazing love affair with Chaz. Um, you know, they found each other late in life. He had never been married. She had been married and divorced. She had this whole family. He had none, really, at that point. And so it's just kind of remarkable. And, you know, I've done a lot of films about race. Um, and we've talked about a number of them already here. Um, to me, their relationship was one of the more beautiful and hopeful things I've ever experienced personally around race because they had this, she's an African-American, Roger's white, and they had this incredible relationship and he had this incredible relationship with her family, with her kids, his stepkids. There's some great like home, home movies, movie footage yeah. of that. That's Yeah, there, there was just such a, a beautiful thing about their relationship and and, you know, I think ultimately the film is about a love affair with life. I mean, when I picked up his memoir, I thought life itself was the name of the memoir, too. Not, and mm-hmm. we, we barred it for the film. I thought, what a curious title for a memoir from a film critic, Life Itself. But, but by the time you get through it, and certainly by the time I did this movie, I came to really appreciate why he would call it Life Itself. Because that's really ultimately what Roger had embraced. He, he had embraced life itself even as he kind of looked at his life in this sort of very deep way as a kind of unfolding movie. Yes. You know, that was at times a comedy, like when he was with Russ Meyer or in the bars, you know, at Old Town Ale House. <laughs> or, and sometimes it was, uh, it was a drama when he was, uh, or a melodrama with Gene Siskel. And at times it was, had tragic dimensions with his health. But, you know, he, he really kind of rode all the the genres of his life. I really felt with Ebert that he was... Movies just gave him an opportunity to write about human emotion and stories, and it was the perfect kind of venue for him to to write about things because it, it, his insights weren't always just cinematic insights. You know, they were Absolutely. insights about stories and people. And that really, I think, comes through. You know, I mean, you're right on, I think, with that observation. Uh, Chaz told me after the film was made um, that he named his memoir Life Itself because Studs Terkel had sent him a note some years ago <clears throat> and said something along the lines of what you just said, that, you know, your writing, your writing is not just about movies, you know? It's, you know, you, you're, you're writing about, you know, life itself. Yeah, it's <laughs> And true. he loved getting that note from Stud, so. Oh, yeah, what better guy to give it to him? <laughs> um, 
There's a thing in the Allen Iverson film at the end where he is quoted. He doesn't. He's not speaking in because he didn't really participate in the film, right? No. Um, but he says, "With all I've done in my life, I've created a picture of me that's not me." Um, have you ever had to deal with somebody coming back to you saying, "This picture that you've painted of me is not me"? Uh, has anyone taken exception to the way they were portrayed? And did you feel they, there was any merit in their concern if there was? Um, yes. I mean, you know, I think that, you know, with with Hoop Dreams, you know, Gene Pingator felt like the film was unfairly harsh towards him. Um we showed him the film before it went out in the world. We went and showed it to him personally, and that was a very interesting screening because when when it started to turn more negative in terms of its portrayal of his decisions in St. Joe's, he, we ended up stopping the film and talking about it for a while and kind of had to say, well, I, we just disagree. I mean, this is, you know. Um, now, I will say that the way in which people viewed him in the film when the film came out was harsher than the film, I think, treated him. And I think that's in part due to the fact that most people, most film critics have very little experience playing sports. I don't want to stereotype, but I think that's largely true. <laughs> um, and they, they, they didn't have coaches and, be, and go through that process. And, and so that some of what Gene was as a coach is what every coach is, which is he screams at kids, you know, and they read that as, you know, more negative than I think it is, uh, unless you just think coaches should never scream at any kids. You know, he, here he was screaming at black kids, right? So he got, I think he got criticized more than he deserved and even more than the film presents him, I think. But he wasn't happy. Uh, I'd say another film, Real Paradise, um, that was tough for... Um, John Pearson, who was a friend and is a friend of mine, and his wife Janet Pearson, who is a friend of mine, and um, and their kids. They were, talk you know, a little bit about that. What it's, this it's, is he? Yeah, this is a film that um, he actually uh, asked me to if I was interested in doing. He had the idea for it, which was John Pearson, who who was for years, he was kind of the indie film guru mm -hmm. um, when Hoop Dreams. You know, 20 years ago, if you made an independent film, you wanted John Pearson to represent it and try and sell it. I mean, he he represented Spike Lee's first film, She's Gotta Have It. He put money into it to help it get made. He sold Slackers. He sold Thin Blue Line and Roger and Me. So, you know, he was right there with all these, like, incredibly important films. Anyway, I, I became friends with him around Hoop Dreams. He didn't try and sell Hoop Dreams, but he became a great champion of it. And then some years later, he said, I'm going to Fiji, taking my family to Fiji to run the, quote, world's most remote movie theater, end quote. And we're going to live there for a year, and it'll be this grand adventure. And, you know, do you, would you like to make a film on it? Now, he would already been over there for a long time when he asked me this, and I thought, yeah, why, why wouldn't I want to do that? That sounds great. And so I went over there with a crew, and we spent the last month of their stay in Fiji. So the film is about their last month in Fiji, but it looks back over the whole year. And it's, you know, it's not what I expected 
to capture. I thought it was going to be this very funny, hilarious sort of film because John is a very, very funny guy. Um, and you know, I thought this was going to be my film comedy. This is going to be my version of American movie kind of, you know. The movie. trailer looks like that. <clears throat> yeah, and it is. And look, it is funny in a lot of ways. I mean, the film is very funny in a lot of ways. But it also has this serious undercurrent because a lot of stuff happened to them in that last month. John came down with dengue fever. Um, their daughter um, got into a, a, a spat with them that turned serious enough that she left home for a number of days. Their, their, their home that they were renting was robbed. Their computers were stolen, and they blamed the drunken landlord uh, for lack of lack security. Um, you know, I, I mean, just a lot of stuff went down. And, you know, and so the portrait of them as a family and, you know, and, and John felt, I think, about him particularly personally and about Georgia, his daughter, uh, you know, he felt that it was too harsh. Um, and we did, we did have some, it's, it's something I do on every film I've done. This film, it was particularly more intense experience than any other film I've done, where I show the main subjects of film before it's done and really want them to weigh in on their feelings about the film and what they think is right or wrong. And sometimes I've changed things because of that. And sometimes, like with Pingator, I've said, you know, sorry, I just, I don't see it that way. I have to, but I feel like it's my duty as a filmmaker <clears throat> to face the music, so to speak, not just have them show up at the premiere and go, well, here's the movie. I feel it's, uh, you know, but it, in order to do that and to do it in a way that I think is the right way to do it, you have to be willing to say no. You can't roll over if you, you know. Right. But you also have to be willing to listen. And change something. You have to go in with a feeling that, okay, I'm, tell me, let's talk about it and, and let's see. You know, you, it, I think you have to go in, and I think that's part of the trust uh, with subjects that, that if they, they have to feel that. So anyway, with John and with Janet, but more with John, there was a, a lengthy back and forth over the content of the movie. And there were some things that I did adjust and change because I, I thought he was uh, he or and Janet were convincing that <clears throat> you know that needed to be changed. And there were things that I didn't change um, because I just said no, I, I disagree. I just I feel like I've got it right, you know. And so that was hard. I mean, it was hard because well, because you were already friends to begin with. We had, yes, we were friends, and that 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 made it very difficult. And I understand and understood what was hard about that for him. Um, in particular, <clears throat> I totally understand that. Um, and it, and it took a while for us to kind of get past that film and kind of get back to a place of, uh, the, the kind of friendship <clears throat> we had before the film. So it can be hard. I mean, I think I've been fortunate. I've been fortunate to, um, not have that happen very often that most of the films I've done, that the people who have seen them, even when they're, they're, you know, problematic portraits that, that people have kind of embraced it, you know, or felt like it was honest and fair. And yes, there are things in there that, you know, they, they maybe wish they hadn't said, but they don't, they, they feel like it's, it's, it's a correct thing that it be in the film. Are you, how are you with, how your career has gone and what are, what is it that you'd still like to do? Is there anything or are there just <clears throat> some stories that are currently knocking around your head that you want to tell? What, 
where do you stand with all that? Yeah, well, I've um, <clears throat> I've got um, after much talk and deliberation and meetings and and all kinds of things, um, the high school has agreed to let me come in, and I'm working with a teacher there at the school who teaches media there. This is Oak Park at River Oak Park Forest? River Forest High School, and we're going to do. <clears throat> If we can raise the money for it, that's the next step. So I have to get the permission first, then I have to raise the money. But if we can raise the money for it, the, the plan is to do a, a film um, uh, follow, uh, looking at race and achievement um, at the high school uh, over the course of shooting like next school year or 12-month period with coinciding with next school year um, to, to look at something that, you know, as you know, as someone who's lived in this community a long time is, um, has been a, you know, a, a big issue here. Um, I'm really excited about it, you know, so I'm, I'm interested in getting back into narrative some. You I did, are. Yeah. I did some of that, you know, right. years ago and then I kind of got, Fontaine, yeah. And, and I did a couple of cable movies and right. then I kind of got away from it because <clears throat> I got away from it because I, um, I was, I missed the experience of being in documentary deeply. And also because those films took me out of town a lot and our kids were young and I was missing them growing up. And so I kind of walked away from that for a while and just devoted myself to documentaries, which I have no regrets about, you know, it's been a great ride in terms of that for me. <clears throat> but now my kids are grown up. Um, my last one just graduated college with a degree in cinematography at Columbia college and has worked with me some. He worked on the Ebert film, Jackson did, and has worked with me on some other stuff. So um, now I feel like I'd, I'd like to get back to trying narrative and, and try to do it in a way that I never felt like I was able to do it back then when I was um, kind of pigeonholed into certain kind of um, rigid idea of sports biopics and just sports biopics, period. You know, the, like I feel like I have a chance now maybe as long as I keep the budgets low enough that maybe I can do something more like what I want to do. More personal, like your documentaries tend to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's st stories that I really have a personal investment in, not just stories, as good as they were, that were opportunities to go direct something. Whatever you got in mind, keep them coming. Yeah, thank you. I, th this is great. I mean, it, you know, what's so funny is, is that I feel like, and not because they're the usual things people talk about at all, but there's something about, the way in which you related to the work, like when you would start to say there was a moment that stood out, I swear to God, I didn't predict all of them. Several times they just popped in my head before you said them and you were like, boom. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I totally love the way you related to the films and how you were, you know, engaging with them. I really enjoyed my homework on this one, I got to tell you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay, that is Steve James. Many, many thanks to him for taking the time. The Ebert documentary, Life Itself, is out there in the world. Check that out if you haven't already. It's great. Or any of the films we talked about. Hoop Dreams, The Trial of Alan Iverson, At the Death House Door, The Interrupters, Stevie, and on and on. Just a great body of work. Steve James. To close things out, uh, just a song before I go. This week it's Chicago songwriter Brian Anderson. I thought this was a good way to close out our Steve James episode. The song is Down to the Bottom. Not a new song, but likely new to most of you. It's off Brian's 2002 record, 
Work We Do, Sounds We Hear. My friend Kate Fitzgerald of the legendary Fitzgerald's Nightclub in Berwyn, Illinois, always says that if there's any justice in the world, Mavis Staples will hear this song and record it. So if anyone knows Mavis, please play this for her. For now, the man himself, Brian Anderson, with Down to the Bottom. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Get down to the bottom of it, and hear the ring of truth.